Paul writes in our text today that power is made perfect in weakness. That's easy to say when you're the one holding power. It's also a much harder truth to live. But Paul was a a powerful man. He was uh, highly educated, uh, educated in his hometown of Tarsus uh, at the feet of a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel uh, was a Pharisee doctor of of Jewish law. And so Paul was um, strictly educated in Jewish ancestral law. He also learned how to to work with his own hands. He learned a trade. He was a tent maker. And so he had the power to make his own way in life too. Uh, Paul was was also a Pharisee. And so he not only was um, uh, trained in Jewish law, he was also a a careful student of the Hebrew Bible. And we know from the stories um, that, that Paul was an enforcer of the law. When we meet him in the book of Acts, Um, We meet him actually at an execution of of one of the Christians, Stephen. Um, Luke makes it a point to say that that Paul approved of what they were doing. Uh, The witnesses were laying their coats at the the feet of this young man. Paul was kind of, uh, Saul at the time, was kind of turned loose on the church. And he was um, breathing threats and murder to to all of the people who who followed uh, Jesus and who followed the, the disciples. So he goes to the high priest, and the high priest gives him authority to go after them. And so here we have um, this this powerful man uh, chasing down Christians uh, and throwing them into prison. He was feared. He was powerful. Uh, But the story takes an amazing turn, and, and you're familiar with it. The tables were actually turned. Jesus meets uh, Saul, who becomes Paul, on the road to Damascus. And literally, uh, Saul is knocked to the ground. And if you remember the story, uh, Saul is is blinded. It was this really bright light, uh, but it wasn't a temporary blindness. Like, he was literally blind, and he couldn't see. It says that he didn't eat anything for three days, didn't drink anything for three days. So um, he was not only blind and vulnerable and surely frightened, but he was also very hungry and and had started to become weak. Um, Later, he writes about, in fact, it's the the chapter uh, chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians, right before our text for today. Uh, He he writes about uh, the fact that he was on the receiving end of the abuse. In verse 24, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Not a a, a litany for the powerful man that he started out as, is it? So who are the powerful people that you know? 
Who are the powerful people in, in our town? What makes a person powerful anyway? Have you ever thought about that? I've thought about that a lot lately. Certainly wealth. Like, who owns the land? Um, position. You know, um, our lawmakers and our judges. Those are positions that afford one power to significantly impact or influence or change the direction of another person's life. That's not to be held lightly. Education. Education is power. Knowledge is power. You know, one of the things that we know about Jesus is that Jesus included the powerful people in his social calendar. He didn't miss an opportunity. Uh, in, in fact, uh, he took the opportunity, even went out of his way uh, to have dinner with them. And what he did was, is uh, he spoke truth to them. Jesus spoke truth to power. And it made a difference. It also got him killed. Who are the powerless people that you know? Who are the powerless people in our community? And what makes them powerless? Jesus went out of his way for them, too. And in fact, in the last three or four weeks, uh, our time together on Sunday mornings, our biblical stories uh, have revealed some of these people. Just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Last week, Jesus takes a child and puts it in their midst. Some time back, we met poor, blind Bartimaeus, a beggar. Someone living in extreme poverty. Jesus was not repulsed by madmen, those that were described as, as being full of demons. Jesus was not repulsed by lepers. Uh, Arnaldo Fortini wrote a book called Francis of Assisi, and he tells this story in the book um, about uh, Francis um, riding on his horse down the road that went past this leper hospital that was situated a far distance from Assisi. Because just as in biblical times, um, in, in his day, uh, lepers were, were also uh, a rejected group. And he, he says that Francis, at this point uh, in his life, was not yet the, the saint uh, that, uh, as, as history remembers him, but he was still wrestling with this, um, this lure uh, of, of wealth and glory and this sense of, of calling into uh, discipleship. And so as he was riding along this road, uh, he, he was absorbed in these thoughts. And then suddenly his horse jerked to the side of the road. And, and it was all that Francis could do to, to get him back on course. And when Francis looked up, standing right there in, in the middle of the road uh, was this leper. And he was this gray specter um, dressed in, in sackcloth. He had a, a shaved head, a stained face. Um, 
He didn't speak a word. He showed no signs of getting out of the way. He just stood there and stared at Francis with this fixed, strange, acute, penetrating gaze. And in an instant that probably seemed like an eternity, Francis gets off of his horse, walks toward this leper, and he takes this poor, emaciated, cold, blood-stained hand that was, that was like the hand of a, a corpse, and he, he pressed the hand, and he brought it to his lips, and he, he kissed the lacerated flesh of this creature one of the most hated, scorned, rejected human beings of of his day. When he did that, he was flooded with this emotion that just shut out everything around him. And Fortini says uh, that that was an early step in Francis's conversion. It taught him about what following Christ entailed. A few years ago, I visited my son, Joey. Uh, He was living in Washington, D.C. He was finishing up uh, law school. And so when I was there, the the cherry blossoms were in full bloom. And so we decided to to take a a walk around the the tidal basin. And it was just a delightful memory. And we ended up at the Thomas Jefferson uh, Memorial. Uh, I, I had never been there. I knew that you know, Thomas Jefferson was one of our founding fathers and that he uh, uh, authored uh, the Declaration of Independence. That's what we celebrate today, July the 4th, 1776, uh, the Declaration of Independence. It's Independence Day, it's Freedom Day. We hold these truths to be self-evident, our Declaration of Independence says, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'll never forget. It gave me chills. Standing in that space at the foot of this statue. At our Juneteenth celebration a couple of weeks ago, Saturday, June the 19th. After the worship service was over and I was uh, just talking with people and looking at the the displays under the tents, um, there was a a young woman uh, selling stuff. Um, It was earrings with little phrases and and different things. And and there was this t-shirt. And this uh, t-shirt grabbed my attention, first of all, because half of it was, was this image of an African woman with a brightly colored turban and the, and the gold necklaces. That was on half of one side. And, and then on the other half, uh, it said, July the 4th. And then with a red line, it was crossed out. And then it said, Juneteenth, 1865, because my ancestors weren't free in 1776. You know, something like that, and I felt it slightly, it can be really offensive. It was offensive at first. 
but not for long. You know, one of the things um, that's happened to me this year is I've literally gone back to school. I've literally gone back to class, history class to, uh, to be exact, and I haven't graduated yet. But I've learned enough to know that I wanted to buy that shirt, and so I did. Uh, one of my classes was this podcast by uh, Nell Irvin Painter, a historian and, and a professor at Princeton, and she talked about some of our, our national history and uh, some of the principles that our, our nation was founded on. Uh, in 1790, um, a decade or so after this Declaration of Independence, our uh, somewhat new nation begins establishing laws that don't always reflect the principles of the Declaration. So, for example, uh, in 1790 was the first national census. Uh, a census is taken to sort out the population for the purpose of governing. Um, you count people in terms that are useful. And so, under the direction of the Secretary of State, uh, a slave owner by the name of Thomas Jefferson, the first U.S. census counted people in these categories. White males 16 and older, white males under 16, white females, all other free persons, and slaves. And you know, uh, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. And that was for purposes of taxation and had something to do with representation uh, in, in Congress. So the U.S. government doesn't choose to count black people except in other categories. And the U.S. government uh, doesn't count Native Americans. And so Congress, one of their first acts after the first census in 1790, is they pass the Naturalization Act. It's the Naturalization Act of 1790. And it says, only free whites can be naturalized as citizens. And so the question was asked, well, what rights do U.S. citizens have? Voting, uh, land owning, access and rights to due process, you can start a business, you can sit on a jury. And Dr. Painter says it's the first time that a race, whiteness, was written into our national identity. She also talks about Thomas Jefferson, our third president, and the fact that he was an Anglo-Saxonist a white supremacist. He wanted a racial purity and that it was really important to him. And he wrote about it often, was criticized by a lot of people, um, but it's in our history. Jefferson wrote, the blacks are inferior to the whites in both body and mind. And a part of his story is that he fathered six children with his slave, multiracial Sally Hemings. A part of his story is that he owned 130 people at Monticello, and he still owned them when he died. And he died on July the 4th, 1826, famously exactly 50 years to the day after he wrote the Declaration, after his publication about the equality of, of all men. Ross is going to Denver next week, and he's going to 
get to go to the Red Rock Amphitheater and see a concert, uh, the Avett Brothers. I just heard a song by the Avett Brothers uh, called We Americans. I'd Google that. It's a powerful song. In the song they say, we built a nation on stolen land and stolen people. And as much as we want to push that history to the side, um, they're right. It's true. It's not just disappointing. We have a deeply tragic history. And so, so where I have found myself in, in all of this is that regardless of what Jefferson and our founding fathers were thinking when they did all of that, for almost 250 years, what you and I have believed and what many of you have fought for is this dream of an America that believes the Declaration. Uh, the preamble of it, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. This Constitution, this Declaration of Independence that we celebrate today that says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So, in our text... This, this Greek word that is translated uh, in the New Revised Standard Version, make perfect. It also means to finish or fulfill. You know, Jesus often says things like, it is when you give your life away that you find it. That's loosening our grip our control, uh, loosening uh, the power that we have to live for ourselves. There's surrender in that. John tells the story of Jesus' uh, last moments. In John chapter 19, we read about Jesus' last words, and then he breathes his last. You, you remember what they are. Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, it is finished. That Greek word, finished, is teleo, to make perfect. Power is made perfect in weakness. It finds fulfillment in the cross. So Paul wasn't too shy to, to boast about himself sometimes, who he was and his accomplishments. But what he really boasted about was the cross of Jesus. 
and the power of that cross. Power is made perfect in weakness. That's easy to say when you're the one holding power and a much harder truth to live. This is the thing. In our text, in Paul's letter, it's God who says it. God the Almighty. God the creator of of galaxies and, and everything under the sun. That God says, my grace is sufficient for power is made perfect in weakness. We approach this table today and realize that God lived it. Jesus' invitation for us to follow him, the invitation to come to this table, is an invitation for us to do the same. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess to you now that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have not heard the cry of the needy. We have not been faithful stewards of creation. We have not loved our neighbor. Our prayer, O Lord, is that you would forgive us. On this day, when we remember and celebrate freedom, we pray that you would free us in every way for joyful obedience. In the name of Jesus, who on the night that he gave himself up for us, took bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body that's given for you. Take this and eat it and remember. And after the supper was over, Jesus took the cup and he held it and and, and offered it to them. He says, This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many, for me and for you, for the sins of many. Drink this in remembrance, often. And so, Lord, these your mighty acts in Jesus, we remember them. We remember together as your church the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us gathered today in our in-person spaces, in our online spaces, that your Spirit uh, would hold us and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine that we have before us, wherever we are, And that you would make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, by your spirit. Make us 
uh, one with you, one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory and we feast together at this heavenly banquet. All glory and all honor is yours, O Lord, as we pray together this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one loaf. The bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. The cup over which we give thanks is a sharing in the blood of Christ. This is the body of our Lord Christ, given for you. And the cup of salvation, the blood of Christ, given for you. Amen.